Early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, Alberta was among the provinces that seemed ready to face the challenge head-on, and in many ways, that's what happened at first. But as summer turned to fall, Alberta followed many provinces and countries with mounting case counts in the pandemic's second wave, and cries have grown louder for the government to do more. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. The National Post Alberta reporter Tyler Dawson joins me to talk about when things started to turn for Alberta, how the government is trying to get a handle on things, and why that may not be enough. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite shows. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Tyler, Alberta started out this pandemic in a fairly strong position compared to many provinces. What was it about the government's early response that put Alberta where it was, say, six months ago? The first thing probably that really contributed to a successful first wave in Alberta was that Dr. Dina Hinshaw did a really good job of being the point person to sort of guide Albertans through the pandemic. The other two things I would probably say contributed to it, the government scaled up considerably in the early days of the pandemic, or at least made it clear they had the capacity to scale up considerably, whether that was promising to build the field hospital in Calgary or expanding testing considerably, purchasing new ventilators, personal protective equipment, things like that. So there was sort of this fiscal capacity that the government was able to sort of bring online very, very quickly to give the sense that the government had it all under control. So when you you take all those factors together, the testing, the ramping of capacity, the sort of steady hand on the tiller that Hinshaw was, I, I think that really was in large part responsible for the successful first wave, reasonably successful, obviously, because people still got sick and passed away. And the last thing, of course, was just simply the weather. The the first wave hit when spring was coming, and that, I think, made a considerable difference absent anything the government did. Now, we get into summer, and Alberta was one of the first provinces to really start opening up segments of the economy, letting people go back to movie theaters, things like that. Mm -hmm. Even then, caseloads seemed manageable. So much so that, you know, the government was talking about, well, we can open schools as normal in the fall, or at least give people the option to stay home, but allow kids back in the classroom. When did things start to look like it could get problematic? To some extent, there were some warning signs over the summer. My only real evidence of that is back in the spring, 3.30, when Hinshaw came out to give her daily update, that was sort of, like, I feel like everyone I knew was was tuning into those, watching what she had to say. And by sort of mid to late summer, people had more or less returned to normal, I think. And that, I think, should have been a warning sign for the government. Now, once the economy reopened, once people started going back to school, you started to see case counts spike in sort of September, October. And as the government said repeatedly, seemingly primarily from gatherings in in homes and things like that. So, you know, that's when things started to go off the rails. But I think the roots of this probably are back in the summer when anecdotally in in my life and maybe yours as well, it seemed like people had sort of decided this was over and gone back to normal. Mm Mm-hmm. And Alberta's not alone in though, is it? No, not at all. I mean, pretty much everywhere in the country is seeing pretty significant spikes right now. Ontario and Quebec, the Atlantic bubble comprising Newfoundland and Labrador, Prince Edward Island, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, there the bubble has popped a little bit there. You're seeing outbreaks in the north. Nunavut is having its very first COVID cases. Their extremely strict travel bubble hasn't totally worked. BC seeing increased cases. It's really 
happening everywhere in Canada. And more broadly, it's happening sort of all over the Western world. In Canada, though, though it is happening everywhere, Alberta seems to be getting a lot of attention in part because of the position it had previously Mm -hmm. and then the position it's in now where you're talking about like bare number of new cases or active cases. Alberta has found itself at the top of a very troubling list. Two weeks ago, Jason Kenney brought in new measures that we now know didn't do what the government had hoped, but who was he really speaking to at that point? I think he was probably speaking to the people that haven't been listening or, or trying to reach the people who haven't been listening, saying that by putting in something like cutting off alcohol service at 10 o'clock and, and closing bars at 11, the sort of implicit message there being that you probably shouldn't be out partying. But at the end of the day, I think it's clear now that that was sort of picking around the edges in terms of a policy decision, closing group fitness instead of gyms and stuff like that. So I think the idea was to try and reach these people who haven't been taking it seriously. So that was sort of the rhetorical part of it. But the the policy response part of it was really picking around the edges. And I don't know if the people he was trying to reach are the people who you know were attending spin class and things like that. That, to some extent, is probably where we see the roots of the failure of that policy attempt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, out of this, there are many people who've been calling for what's essentially like a circuit breaker lockdown. They say that you shut everything down for two weeks or four weeks, Mm -hmm. and then we can get back to normal. The government has so far been resistant to that idea. And I'm just curious as to why that is. And this government isn't alone in being resistant to that. There's no one in Canada is really doing a circuit breaker, but I'm just curious what Alberta's thought process is on that. Yeah, sort of fundamentally, it's economic. They've said that, you know, look, we could do a two week circuit breaker lockdown, but does anyone really think it's only going to be two weeks? You know, if we shut things down for two weeks, what are the effects going to be longer term? Are we going to need to stay locked down longer term? And part of the reason I think why they're being resistant to this is the evidence that they're working off of in terms of where these cases are spreading is in households and house parties and things like that. So if their evidence is correct, and there is some reason to be suspicious of it, because there is research from other jurisdictions suggesting that shopping and bars and things like that are the source of a lot of spread. But if you can say, you know, look, this is people having house parties, and not retail being open, what is sort of the value in in closing retail and pubs and restaurants and, and what have you, if those aren't major sources of spread. Now, obviously, there's all sorts of other problems in this, you know, the contact tracing system is overwhelmed, there's evidence from other jurisdictions saying that this might not be the case, so on and so forth. But very fundamentally, it's about keeping the economy going to some extent. And on the other side of that, it's also a reluctance, I think, to spend the kind of money you would need to spend to support people through a prolonged lockdown. Because the measures that were introduced a couple of weeks ago, you know, the restaurant hours and the the closing fitness classes and the capacity limits at places like weddings and funerals and church services, because they didn't have the desired effect, the government brought in even further restrictions, you know, fines if you have a gathering at your home that's managed to anger people who feel the government isn't doing enough and also a new group who feel the government is doing too much. What about these new measures is that group finding so problematic? Yeah, I think it's sort of fundamentally really hard to put a finger on what they find problematic. To some extent, I think there are people who genuinely believe there are rights and freedoms implications of, say, fining people for having a party. You know, some folks saying, look, it's a violation. How can the government tell me who I can have in my own home and what we're doing in my own home? There's also sort of the conspiratorial side of this that is concerned about wearing masks as some sort of 
totalitarian step towards limiting people's freedoms. So I think there's some genuine concerns about rights. I've been saying for a long time when I've sort of been asked about this, I mean, it's obvious that these are violations of people's rights. It is an, an obvious violation of your rights to be told that you cannot have people in your own home. The question sort of is whether or not those things are justifiable. Mm -hmm. It is a hard sell, I think, for policymakers who presumably are as baffled as everyone else looking at this and saying, how the heck do we get a handle on this? How the heck do we reach these people and communicate to these people? Which leads to another sort of tangential side issue, but it is one I think that really plays in here is that the government's communication strategy has not changed in nine months as we lost control in the in the fall as cases began to rise among people in sort of the 20 to 40 age bracket. I mean, the communication strategy didn't change. So I think in part, this this backlash and the loss of control is due to maybe a communications failure at some point. Even the messaging has been kind of muddled. Jason Kenney was on a Facebook Live recently, and he addressed the whole idea of not having a province-wide mask mandate. Mm -hmm. The new measures that were put in place added a mask mandate in certain areas but not all areas. And obviously Edmonton and Calgary have been under citywide mask mandates for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons he said is that, you know, people in some of these rural places who may be wearing a mask now, as soon as he tells them to wear a mask, they're not going to listen to him. Mm -hmm. And isn't that the whole problem here with some of these other measures, these listen to us measures, as opposed to just a full on, big crackdown. And not that I'm advocating for that, but uh, you know, it's the whole idea that if you're asking people to follow you and you admit that people won't listen, kind of, well, isn't that the whole problem here? Yeah, it is in large part, I think. There is, I think, sort of this reflexive libertarianism maybe, which, which isn't super accurate, but this reflexive anti-government attitude that is sort of playing in an undertone to all of this that comes up in the question of mandatory vaccinations as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, there certainly are people who are not going to wear a mask once they're told to wear a mask. Whether or not that is an, you know, enough people that there would not be value of this policy, I think that is a separate question. But they're certainly trying to walk a fine line here, not angering people trying to sort of coax people along instead of force people along. You know, there's a vaccine in the visible future. So that might be a successful strategy if they can keep things reasonably under control for the next six or eight months, let's say. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it is difficult because at some point, the government might have to do all these things saying, look, you have to do this. This is the law. You will get in trouble if you don't do this. And I think people don't necessarily like that. So that comes back a little bit to the communications. I mean, how do you sell these things to people who are going to have sort of visceral objections to, to government, say, overstepping or, or stepping into a sphere where they don't want them to? Looking at the health communications aspect of this, we have Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, who in the spring was seen as kind of a savior. She was a calming force. I remember seeing a lot of social media uh, anytime that the premier or a minister would be at one of these press conferences that just leave the politicians out of it and just let her calm us and lead us through this. Now she's being questioned by people about whether she's being firm enough with the government. Do we get the sense that there's a disconnect between what she would like the government to do and what the government is doing? Yes, that is certainly the rumor. That's the sort of topic of conversation, I think. I was in the ER at the start of the pandemic for a concussion and there was a, you know, a big poster of, of Dina Hinshaw in the ER and I asked one of the nurses about it and they're like, oh yeah, she, we're, everyone's a big fan of her. So there is this shift in how people have perceived her in terms of, is she just, you know, a lackey of Jason Kenney or whatever? Is she 
not exercising her powers to the fullest extent. And she's had to address that repeatedly in recent weeks, sort of saying that, look, my role is to advise. I'm not the the tyrant of the pandemic response. So she has been put in sort of a difficult position personally, I think, because the government on one hand is saying, you know, she's the expert, we're listening to her. And then the government does something that all these self-appointed experts on Twitter and actual experts, for the record, Mm -hmm. are saying isn't enough. So she's sort of being dragged in multiple directions, I think. This even came to a a head late last week before our recording where there was a CBC story that contained leaked audio from meetings Mm -hmm. where Dr. Hinshaw and members of her staff were talking about you know, it being an uphill battle with government or, you know, we fought over rapid testing or serology testing. Mm -hmm. What do you feel that does to the pandemic response, the relationship between Hinshaw and government, and even the public's perception of how the government is managing this? I think the main risk of this is that the people who are most inclined to take this seriously, are most inclined to listen to Dina Hinshaw, look at this and see some sort of awful scandal of the government overruling a public health official. And, and it's going, it makes them more skeptical. I mean, I, I think the people who were never listening, who never thought this was serious, the anti-mask protesters, things like that, you're not going to win that many more hearts and minds to that side of this controversy. Mm-hmm. The issue is probably the people who would take it seriously, who look at this and are saying, oh, politics are taking over this. This is really bad. And it erodes trust a little bit, I think, in the way the government is responding. But at the end of the day, I don't think anyone should have been surprised by this. It was interesting to look in, to get a glimpse into the room, to see what was being said, what these arguments looked like. Yeah. But I mean, of, of course the government was making decisions in the end. The new measures that were introduced late November, they're essentially given about three weeks to work to see whether we need to continue them or expand them. Could the government go further or do you think it would just be more of a, you know, spend Christmas at home, don't go anywhere kind of message at the end of this three weeks? Yeah, the government has certainly telegraphed that they might go further. A threat, so to speak, saying that, you know, look, if these case counts don't come down, we are going to have to do something else. There's maybe an open question about whether or not that's a bluff. Are they saying this to try and encourage people to behave better is if they say, look, you might not have a Christmas, is that going to be something that will encourage people to reduce their bubbles and stuff like that in the next couple of weeks? I think it's pretty hard to say. And they're going to reevaluate December 15th or something like that. Let's say they go further. How the heck are you going to enforce that over Christmas? How are you going to communicate to people that they have to you know, give up their Christmas this year? I think it's quite a risky time because no matter what they do, I don't know how you're going to convince people to give up their Christmas this year. And then if they don't go further, and maybe things do come down, I mean, what does the post-Christmas spike look like? Because we did see that after Thanksgiving, too. That's true. And I know uh, all eyes are on Alberta right now. We'll see how that goes over the next few weeks. Tyler, thanks for your time. My pleasure. 10.3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Tyler Dawson. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.